Hello everyone, welcome to Podcasting Social Work. Podcasting Social Work is a platform for learners, educators, social workers and activists to share your stories and skills to empower communities and transform lives. My name is Hassan Mahabub. I am a social worker and community organizer. I teach social work at Centennial College of Ontario. Today's episode is on how can civil resistance and social work integration enhance social change. I'm going to host this episode and pleased to inform you that Mr. Hardy Merriman, who is a leading political scientist, educator, and civil rights scholar in the recent time, will join us in this episode. Mr. Merriman is the president of International Center on Nonviolent Conflict in Brief ICNC, a US-based nonprofit social justice organization that supports nonviolent civil resistance study and practice across the world. It was my great pleasure to meet the ICNC president in the Latin America Regional Institute on the study and practice of strategic nonviolent action in Kyoto, Ecuador, where over 55 civil rights activists, educators are participating from across the world. How are you, Hardy? I'm doing great, thanks. Thank you so much for your time. I know you are very busy in Regional Institute in Latin America, and I am um, very happy to participate in your sessions on civil resistance, social movements, nonviolent strategies and tactics uh, in Ecuador. Now, through this podcast, I would like to connect you with st- our students, social workers, educators, and community activists. Can you please tell us about your work and passion in civil resistance social movement and nonviolent action. Great, sure. Thank you, Hassan, and thank you for inviting me to join this podcast. Um, I'm excited about the topic that we're going to discuss, social work, civil resistance, and social movements. I think it's an area of great potential growth. And so my work focuses on nonviolent movements that are struggling for rights, freedom, and justice around the world. So I've been doing that for 17 years almost. And what I try to do is figure out why do some movements succeed and why do others fail? That's a very important area to... Yeah. So I I take a social science approach to that, trying to learn whatever the research can tell me, as well as learning from activists that I talk to around the world. And really the emphasis that I have is on strategy. So, So when we look at why a movement succeeds or fails, we can look at the movement's environment. For example, what are the conditions in which the movement exists? How challenging are they? Are there opportunities? And that's a very important line of inquiry. My line of inquiry looks on the things that a movement can control, its strategy, its choices, the development of its skills. And so um, looking at the way skills and strategy can help a movement overcome challenging conditions is is, is a focus of my work. Wonderful. And uh, as you know that uh, our how our social work uh, works uh, in the uh, current Uh, situation. According to International Federation of Social Workers, social work is a practice-based profession and academic discipline that promotes social change and development. Social work also promotes social cohesion, the empowerment, and liberation of people. So from this perspective, um, I try to give an overview about social work. Can you please define some key concept for our audience like civil resistance, social movements, and nonviolent action. Sure, I'd be happy to. So civil resistance and nonviolent action are pretty much the same thing. 
some people just prefer one term or another. I actually used to use the word non term nonviolent action a lot. Now I use the term civil resistance a little bit more. But different people prefer different ones, and that's totally fine. Um, regardless of which term we use, what we're talking about is a way for ordinary people to struggle without the use of violence for rights, freedom, and justice. And it consists of three kinds of acts. So the first is acts of commission. This is where people do things that they're not supposed to do, not expected to do, or that are illegal to do. So for example, a protest or a sit-in, um, or, or changing your social behavior at a public event or a holiday or some, some you know, high visibility time, for example, things that aren't, you're not supposed to do or that may actually be forbidden from doing. Um, and then acts of omission are the opposite, where we don't do things that we're supposed to do, expected to do, or required to do. And there, I mean, when you think about your day and all the things you're expected to do, imagine if you stopped doing them, right? So what if you didn't pay taxes? What if you didn't pay your utility bills? What if you withdrew your money from banks? What if you stopped buying a certain product or, or just shifted your buying patterns somehow? Um, what if you didn't obey certain rules of, of social behavior or started withdrawing um, um, from political institutions that you may participate in? All of those would be acts of omission. And then the third is, is a combination of both, and that would be something like building an alternative institution. Um, so for example, alternative schools, uh, where, where children may both come out of a regular school system and then be, enter into an alternative school that's been created, uh, sometimes by a movement. This may sound, um, this may sound distant to, to some of us, but actually this has happened in countries around the world. Similarly, alternative governance structures, alternative economic structures, those are all part of civil resistance as well. And in, what's really interesting about this definition to me is there's an embedded theory of power in this definition. What we're really seeing here is, is it's about people's consent and obedience patterns. It's about the, the, their behavior and their cooperation or non-cooperation. And so the embedded theory of power here is that if a lot of people shift their behavior patterns in a strategic way, they can actually shift the balance of power in society. Great. So I can see uh, from the values and principles of civil resistance, it's about realizing human rights. It's about uh, working towards social justice. It's about uh, uh, people's voices uh, in the government process. So um, I see real connection in that. So in this regard, I know that uh, you have great interest in civil resistance and social work integration. So I would like to ask you, how can civil resistance and social work integration enhance social change? You already elaborated, but uh, it would be great for our audience to know more from you. Sure. Um, well, so if we compare social work and activism or, or, or civil resistance, one thing we'll see is a common set of values, right? Some of the values you listed are exactly those values that cause activists to join a movement and mobilize. Um, so there's one thing in common right there. Um, <clears throat> One difference, however, is that social work is, is professionalized, right? Right. You have yes. a whole educational process, uh, mentorship, practice, uh, a body of, of literature that gets updated in, uh, with research every year that then gets taught to students, and then um, professional associations. And that is that educational infrastructure is so critical to making social Thank work you what for it your is, feedback. and we want to continue to develop it, right? And so if we compare that with <clears throat> what the activist or the organizer has, I mean, there are many people who, for example, may go through law school and become an activist, or go through social work school and become an activist. But if someone wants to really make their vocation, uh, you know, trying to really organize people to nonviolently discover their rights, 
there's not a lot of educational process set up for that. Um, some of it could come through social work school, but there's a huge body of knowledge about how do you organize communities and how do you how do you struggle nonviolently against when systems are really unaccountable. Absolutely. And so when I work, my work is international. So. I see that activists don't have the kind of educational infrastructure and learning opportunities that they need to become better at what they do. It's pretty amazing, you know, activism is a, is a fairly looked down upon and disrespected vocation. And yet it's one of the toughest jobs in the world, right? The skills that activists need, everything from, you know, building coalitions to listening, to learning how to uh, communicate effectively, um, to strategic planning and analysis and, and gathering facts and figuring out, you know, what their opportunities are. I mean, that's skill-based work. Absolutely. And, and if we don't create structures for activists to, again, learn from each other, learn from examples in other parts of the world and in history, uh, and learn from what the research is telling them, they're left with very few resources. And so it's pretty amazing what they're able to achieve with so little educational infrastructure, what would it mean if we mainstreamed that a lot more so that it was available to a lot more people? Great. Uh, just I would like to update you about uh, the recent trend in social work practice. Uh, we say anti-oppressive social work practice. In this practice, we look at the issues that uh, cause marginalization and powerlessness yeah. and uh, that, that cause poverty. So that we can support the person effectively, we can support the family effectively. Uh, at the same time, we also work with groups and communities on different community issues, and we work together to address that. And at the same time, we also engage them in movement, uh, so that uh, the voices are heard by the policymakers. So I, I can see I'm very uh, nice to see that how civil resistance work and social work integrates so much. And uh, that's a great discovery. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you sharing because as someone who has not gone through social work school, you know much better what is taught in the profession than I do. Um, but it's interesting. This year I've heard from several social workers about, wow, there's big potential synergy here. And in fact, we even recently published a blog post on ICNC's website about this, about, you know, why aren't we working together more? Um, so again, I think, I think people are feeling uh, the spirit of the times, um, the, fact that, um, the fact that we have a lot that we can learn from each other. And so I just love that we're able to talk about this and push this conversation forward. Thank you so much. And uh, we hope that uh, I have already gone through the blog you have provided me and it's uh, really fantastic. And I'm getting more ideas how we, we can integrate uh, civil assistance study in social work. Uh, now, I would like to um, ask you to advise uh, especially for our students and social workers and also for community activists. You have great experience when you were working with world communities in designing and executing social uh, nonviolent uh, strategies and tactics for a campaign. So would you like to give us some tips uh, in that regard how we can plan? Sure. Um, so I, I, I certainly can't add to, to Gandhi's first step, which was investigation. And um, Gandhi first said, you need to deeply understand the issue, the grievances, the causes and conditions of the issue, and the people and groups involved. And so that is just fundamental for any kind of organizing that I know, is deep understanding of the context, the individuals, and sometimes the history, the social and political and economic dynamics. And once you've done that investigation, um, 
you know, the next step would be actually trying institutional means. Dialogue might work, negotiation might work, voting might work, uh, the legal system might, might, might work for you. And so it's really, I mean, most people want to try to work with institutions. I mean, engaging in nonviolent action takes more effort if institutions are working. So, however, if you find that institutions are insufficient, uh, are dragging their feet, are taking too long, uh, or in many parts of the world, they're just categorically unavailable or deeply corrupt, then that raises the question, what do you do next? What kind of pressure can ordinary people bring when they're facing oppression? What, what can they do when, when power holders that seem to have all the advantages, you know, more structure and hierarchy, human resources, control the information environment, material resources, and, and even, you know, the capacity for repression, what do ordinary people do? And so they, at that point, um, that's where this critical insight about power comes from, that actually it's through the behavior of lots of people that this hierarchy exists. And so that's when we start to think, okay, what is our vision for change? This is sort of step three. What is our vision for change? Not just what are we against, but what are we for? We, it's, it's often easiest for people to, figure, to articulate what they feel oppresses them. And, and that can be a basis for unity, but also saying, what is it that we proactively want to achieve if we start to organize as a community um, and, and, and engage in civil resistance? So then the next step after that would be, what are the major um, intermediate steps we can take towards achieving that vision? And these are what we call campaigns. So campaigns are really important because a lot of people lack confidence that actually engaging in nonviolent action will work. This is despite the fact that actually there's a very rich history of movements doing it successfully. So a lot of onlookers need to see that if people are engaging in nonviolent tactics like strikes and boycotts and civil disobedience and various acts of non-cooperation, um, that they're actually gonna be effective. So picking those intermediate objectives is critical because when you achieve them, it helps to build confidence. We saw this, for example, in the U.S. Civil Rights Movement, where the Montgomery bus boycotts of 1955 were successful. It showed people that there was a technique that could be replicated, and indeed other bus boycotts happened throughout the South. In 1960, you had the sit-in campaigns in, in Nashville and Greensboro, and similarly, you had, you had you know, sort of a proof that for these intermediate objectives, for these campaigns, this nonviolent technique was effective. And so these campaigns build on each other. And then the last level of planning would be tactics. What are the actual, what's the actual sequence of tactics that you want to engage in? And, you know, on the issue of tactics, a lot of people think that nonviolent civil resistance is just about protest, right? These are protest movements is what people think, but actually, there are hundreds of different tactics. I've listed a few others, but there are many tactics that are also very low risk. So it's not like people need to be full-time activists to engage. Some of the most powerful tactics are just changing buying patterns. For someone, it may require very little sacrifice to do it, but the cumulative effect, if thousands of people do it, could be very significant. Yes, great. So um, there are very important uh, uh, tips and uh, guidelines for our uh, community workers, students, and social workers. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for sharing these. Uh, and I have seen your little bio, and I have found you have tons of experience in this area as educator, as researcher, um, and you have represented many organizations uh, in United States. Uh, and uh, congratulations for that. Um, 
Now, I would like to know about ICNC, where you are leading the team and supporting various activist group uh, and community groups uh, for nonviolent conflict and civil resistance study. So, in this regard, can you please tell us how uh, our students and community uh, workers, social workers, can participate in some of the initiatives of ICNC? Sure. So generally speaking, we have two big areas of activity. The first is our academic and research area, and the second is our direct work with practitioners. And so in our academic and research area, we support PhD research. We actually publish special reports, which are about 10 to 20 pages generally, uh, some are longer, and also monographs, which are shorter than a book, but fairly substantial, usually between 50 and 100 pages. And we support, we, we provide financial support for that, and then we publish them. Wonderful. We also support teaching. So if there are educators who want to actually incorporate content about more content about movement organizing and nonviolent civil resistance in their classes we offer a small stipend and also um, uh, can help provide guidance on, on curriculum resources and models of curricula that people can use um, and then in our field programs uh, you know for, if there are those who are interested in, in, in learning more as whether as activists or other kinds of practitioners I mean we have a lot of resources on our website that you can download and many of them are in different languages. We actually have resources in 70 languages and dialects wow. on our website. Um, we also used to have a program of making grants to activists, um, <clears throat> although currently we're, currently we're reevaluating and recalculating the next step with that, although it's been incredibly, incredibly successful and powerful. And we're also doing work um, on regional institutes, which is where we are right now, where we are trying to set up institutes in different parts of the world. We have one in Ecuador, um, one in Kathmandu, one in Ukraine, and hopefully we'll be able to establish one in West Africa, um, great where we partner with local institutions, universities and NGOs to try to do a week of in-depth civil resistance learning. Uh, I would like to say that uh, I, um, I was very happy to receive curriculum fellowship from ICNC. And that actually inspired me to learn more about this uh, civil resistance study. And as a result, I'm here today in Kyoto uh, to learn more from you and from other facilitators from this region. And uh, I'm, I have been using the materials provided by IC, ICNC. And not only the materials, I receive uh, immense support, mentorship from IC, ICNC. And that I have been using, my knowledge that I have been using it with my students. And recently I'm going to uh, develop one online uh, version for uh, power and social movements uh, course in our uh, college and I, I hugely rely on these materials just this is for your kind information and this uh, education model uh, research support and your um, uh, overall uh, mentorship is so important for us so thank you so much uh, Hardy once again and uh, regarding um our conversation how would you like to what you would like to say to our learners and uh, social workers uh, and how actually we can uh, actively engage in this uh, kind of civil assistance around us and uh, fight for social justice and human rights well i mean what i'd say to anyone who is going out in the world and dedicating their time whether it's professionally or outside of their profession, to being a change agent for the better is thank you. Thank you for your work. I, I, it is not easy, 
Um, we all know that. It's, it is um, not always highly rewarded, um, but it can be very highly rewarding. And uh, whether your perspective is social work, um, public health, civil resistance, whether you are more comfortable at a macro setting or a micro setting, um, thank you for your work and let us continue it together. Let us learn from each other. Let us work together. Let us support each other. So on behalf of our audience and our students, I would like to thank you once again for your leadership uh, for ICNC and also as individual, I can see your passion and support for us. And thank you so much once again, um, dear, dear audience, we'll uh, come to you with another episode with other issues. Uh, keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you.